Hello everyone and welcome to our second episode of Shifting the Needle. In today's podcast we're talking about an issue that has really been on our minds at ECC over the last few weeks. Many listeners will know that we work with a lot of the DEI professionals in the UK and globally, certainly in the banking and legal markets. How we work together to affect real change is always important, but of course inclusivity, and particularly on the subject of race, has moved significantly up the agenda following recent events. For this episode, we speak to the wonderful Sam Akinlui and Jessica Rogers, both of whom are black and have a long experience of the corporate world and are coaches with ECC. We also speak to Jane Storer, who has fabulous expertise in inclusivity. Our aim was to discuss the interventions that businesses can put into place to dismantle racism and build inclusivity and belonging. I should have been surprised that whilst these individuals are experts in these areas, first and foremost, they are, of course, experts in their own life and their personal experiences. It's a reminder to me of how wonderful it can be to just listen to what other people have to say and how it can enrich my perspective and opinions. That's, of course, what we think is the starting point for any real change, building empathy and perspective. And so I wanted you to have the same opportunity to listen to these experiences. And now, on with the podcast. Hi, I'm Geraldine Gallagher, and I'm the CEO of ECC. Hi, I'm Sam Akinriyi, and I'm an executive coach with the ECC. Sam, you and I both know that black talent is massively underrepresented. And I just wonder, as a coach, I'm constantly thinking about, you know, how can this be addressed? Now, you're a coach. What do you think? As a coach, what's quite normal when you start a coaching relationship is to, someone comes to you with the problem or, or with the opportunity. It's not something that you often have to instigate. So I don't go and say, hello you need coaching, you need help here. Um, it tends to come to us. And someone comes with something they are dedicated to fixing, um, whether it's for their own um, personal well-being or whether it's for their career. It could be a variety of things. So when we talk about a role as a coach with regards to black representation, well, my role is always to help people achieve what they want to achieve. And I need to make sure that yeah, I'm aligned to that. I don't want to help someone who um, who wants to achieve something that goes against my principles uh, and the way I like to work and what I believe. However, it's got to start with someone coming to me or to us, Geraldine, um, as coaches with, I really want to fix this. Yeah. Um, so I think our role as a coach is to help, always to help people get to where they want to get to. And that's a really important start point. And, and if someone came to me and said, right, I want to address maybe my biases or the, the structural challenges or systemic challenges with, with race that I see within my organisation, that's the start point for me. Tell me, Sam, how many times has anyone ever said that to you? It's happened once, but not in a, a coaching capacity. You know, I work as, a, as an advisor in business and someone gave me a call and said, um, Sam, I'd love to have more black people within my organisation, but no one applies. So my call to action was, well, let's find more black people. Um, and, and that's what I did. Now, no one's necessarily wanted coaching. Um, they might want some direction. Um, they often want my view as a black person. And, um, but they haven't come specifically and said, I want coaching on this. 
um, I'm finding that organizations right now are trying to fix this really quickly, um, structurally. They're trying to turn it into a KPI that they want to address. And at some point, someone's going to have to say, it starts with us. What do I have to unlock in myself to enable change to happen within my organization? I'm wondering now, you know, at this stage in the development of coaching and the evolution of coaching, is it bad to have an agenda? I don't think it's bad to have an agenda. And it's quite poignant. Yesterday I heard a Martin Luther King quote that was challenging the rest of the church when he was put in prison for protests and and other church leaders said, I think you need to calm down a bit. Um, I'm I'm paraphrasing because I haven't read this myself. And he wrote a letter saying, are we going to be thermostats or thermometers? And I thought that was really interesting. Are we going to just sort of understand what's going on and go with what's going on? Or are we going to be more proactive? Are we going to be thermostats, turning the heat, turning the direction, putting a light on things that are wrong and helping organisations get there? And Geraldine, we've spoken more than once about this. And as a coach, yes, I can just be Socratic and ask more questions and bounce things back. But often I get asked, what do you think? Yeah. And there are things that we should, particularly with things to do with inequality or things that we should just state that we believe in, you know, things like inequality, whether it's gender, whether it's colour, um, just like we would with our coaching ethics, there are lines that we are not prepared to cross. There are things we're not prepared to do. There are things that we certainly should be challenging and provoking and encouraging. And I think racial equality is one of those things. I absolutely love that distinction between a thermostat and a thermometer. I think maybe what's happening, Sam, is I'm feeling like I want to be more of a thermostat. I think we can all do something. So, Gerald, I think everyone can be a thermostat, but we're probably starting from different places. I know that I can probably engage and reach young black people in a way that maybe you initially, it would be harder for you to make that connection. I know that. I also know that because I'm in a corporate background and I've grown up in some of the world's biggest organisations from a, from a prof, in a professional um, sense, I can talk to board members, I can talk to senior leaders, just like you can as well. So the question is, what do we do when we're in the rooms? And I actually haven't spent enough time in the rooms with young black talent saying, you can do it, because I did. You know, I haven't got, I didn't have as good A-levels or academic results as you did. You can do it. I believe in you. So there's probably a lot of things I can do there. There are also a lot of things I can do and and, and we can do in the corporate sense to say, this isn't good enough. What are you doing? How can you make it better? Whether we help you as coaches or you find help from somewhere else, I don't really care. It just needs to be better. And that, I think, is is what we both can do. So it's it's more, I don't think that it's a black or a white thing. I think it's what what is our bubble of influence? What's our sphere of influence? I'm privileged to be able to, to do certain things. What am I using with my privilege to make a difference? You know, I went to a I went to a comprehensive school, um, a, a relatively rough comprehensive school, um, Southeast London, Kent. Um, I yeah, I didn't have great results, but I pushed through and I kept working. Um, I'm a hard worker as a result. And, and yes, I'm living a more comfortable lifestyle as a result of that. Whereas there's, a, there's so many who are not living 
the way I'm living. And the big difference is the big privilege I had that not everyone has is I had two two parents at home that were very supportive and spoke positively into my life. And so I do think there are levels of privilege. Now, I also have experience and, you know, the last few weeks you realise that actually I have been at the mercy of racism and, and, and I have experienced racism throughout that. But despite that, I am in a, in a position where I can do something with the privilege I have. I do think there's um, other people have a head start or certainly I had a handicap um, because of my colour. And it, I had to write it down to realise that all my experiences, the negative ones that to do with racism, uh, my friends and a lot of my friends are white friends would never have had to do. So there's a scale. And yes, when it comes to within the black community, my parents, I would say my education, that has helped. But there are still so many people, so many people that are not as as fortunate as I am. And I need to think about what I do to help those people now. I think going back to coaching, that's why coaching is so important, because we work with individuals and we meet them wherever they're at. And they could be at very, very different points, whether they're white or they're black. And we acknowledge that and we and we move them on. And I, I also know that there's a strong responsibility, I feel. Being inside the system allows us the opportunity to introduce into the coaching space with leaders um, a more inclusive approach. And I think, you know, we, we recognise that we really do need leaders to become more inclusive. How do we do that? I think we ask them the question, do you want to be more inclusive or not? We've tried so many ways of showing them the the return on investment from being more inclusive, that diverse teams give a better EBIT return and compound annual growth rate return over five years. And I actually think that's a a big distraction. Um, I, I think we need to be looking at people in the eyes and saying, do you believe in an equal society where everybody has um, equality of opportunity? Do you believe that diversity um, is a good thing? Do you believe that everybody should have the same kind of opportunities? And I, I want to hear if they say yes or no. An acid test is, would a company be willing to sacrifice one or two, maybe three EBITDA margin points, profit points, to be more equal and to be more fair and to do do more good in the world. And I think that's the question we should be asking leaders. Are you prepared to make more of an effort and put more resources in and maybe take more risk? Now, what if you do make less money as a result? Is it still not the right thing to do to give people an equal chance? The irony of this is that all of the statistics show that better diversity equals better business. And so we're actually in a situation where I believe, because you know I've been uh, pushing for gender equality for a long time. Um, And I know at the beginning, I very much set out to prove to um, potentially recalcitrant organizations that it made sense. It made sense. Look at the numbers, look at the numbers here. And actually, I think, you know, the McKinsey numbers, the catalyst numbers when it comes to diversity, both race and gender, have been out there for quite a long time. They are out there. And I don't think they're making a difference. So going to your point about looking people in the eyes, it just makes business sense now. We know that. But actually, perhaps people do make decisions based on much more emotional data. We know that as coaches, that the rational data isn't what's going to power change. What actually 
changes people is lived experience. I am... I was on a call with a group of leaders from an NHS trust and they were talking about diversity and it's quite open if you if you go to the NHS websites you can see that they are very diverse up until a certain point and you'll be familiar with with the shape of this Geraldine when it comes to sort of um, gender diversity in the workplace but beyond a certain level the BAME diversity or BAME representation drops, almost halves, and when you get to senior levels. We were fortunate enough and, and privileged enough to be on the call. And one lady said something that really struck me. She said, um, it's not a head problem, it's a heart problem. So yes, we can put all the stats in front of people, but if you're not losing sleep over a, a sense of injustice, and a sense of inequality and a sense of unfairness that you want to resolve, um, you're not going to make that extra effort. It becomes a tick box exercise. Um, it becomes just a, a KPI that you have to hit and a pledge that you put on the wall that gets pretty dusty. So the question is, how do you get people to genuinely care at a heart level? And yeah, lived sharing lived experiences and getting to know people and seeing things from their perspective, you know, that big word empathy is incredibly important. I'm hoping, Sam, that this is a moment in time. The two things, the confluence of COVID with everyone working from home and also what happened with George Floyd, those two things coming together, I do hope they remain on in the psyche and have had a, an effect on society. Mm. I, I genuinely do. And as an optimist, I have to believe that something good will come out of all of this. I agree with your optimism and I do share it. The optimism, I think we're both in the same place here, has comes hand in hand with the action. So if we do something, things will be better. No one should wait for this to just happen. And and what I'm challenging and anyone around me to, to do is say, right, what are you what are we doing? I'm optimistic we'll, the collective will do something and we'll do, but that comes with individual action. Um, so as a coach, that's what I'm encouraging anybody to do that I'm, I'm, I'm talking to and I'm working with. But I'm also saying that to myself as well every day. What am I doing? That's I'm anti-racist. What are we doing every day to be anti-racist? And that is how I think the optimism turns into a, a, a great new reality at some point in the future. Thank you, Sam. As ever, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I always learn so much in even short space of time. Um, it's been a real insight. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Jane Storer and I'm an executive coach and I've been working with ECC for 11 years now. Hi Jane, thanks for joining me to have a conversation about diversity and inclusion and I guess what's been going on in the last six weeks plus. So shall we start by clarifying the difference between diversity and inclusion and how you see that difference? Yes, I think it's important to differentiate what we mean um, between diversity and inclusion. So diversity is really a statistical measure and it looks at the uh, how representative the workforce is in, in relation to the society that it sits in. Diversity in itself does not predict, um, you know, more collaboration or better creativity. But research is suggesting that a well-managed diverse team, which can harness the diverse talents within the team, 
is much more effective at you know, creating innovative solutions for things, identifying potential new markets, um, and harnessing what somebody like Matthew Syed would call collective intelligence. So for me, the most important aspect of this is really looking at inclusion and how leaders can be better at harnessing the diverse talents in their team. And to me, the way that they do this is learning to be much more inclusive. I think that calls on different leadership competencies to what we may have expected in the past. Yeah. And in in terms of our role as coaches, how do you see where we fit into this puzzle in terms of trying to uh, help leaders to be more inclusive? Uh, Well, I think that is where we fit in, actually. I, I, you know, I see limited um, ability for a coach to challenge an organization on its diversity targets um, or the metrics that they use. But where where we can bring our experience into this discussion is exactly in helping leaders change and, and identify what they need to adapt in their leadership toolkit to become more inclusive and to understand how to get the best out of everybody in their team, regardless of their lived experience, regardless of their cultural or racial background, and how to create a team that really blends and thrives together. I'm also interested in um, looking at targeted support for those people that might feel that they are um, out of the system, that they feel that they've been, you know, they've not got the same opportunities I mean, is there any value in supporting people who, for example, looking at BAME individuals who we know statistically are not getting a fair deal? And so how do you feel about actually targeting coaching support there? I think that can help. And I think learning the lessons that we have from the many years that we've been involved in supporting females, you know, in the gender equality space that we've worked in together, I think there is some value in targeted support. I think uh, leadership development programs specifically for a group can help people expand their network. I think it can help them understand their strengths. I think it can build their confidence. But that in itself does not change the systemic barriers that exist. Because I think it's very important to recognise that There's so few black people at very senior levels in organisations, and that's not because there's no black talent in the country, it's because something is getting in the way of them rising through the ranks. And to do this job, to to look at it holistically, I think we have to identify all of the barriers that are involved. And so for me, that, you know, that targeted approach would be useful, but only as an extra, not as the main ingredient, if you like. I think it's one piece of the jigsaw, but not the most important. You know, I think as coaches, we can we can blend our approach with other, um, you know, contributions, other expertise to look at how we do a root and branch re-examination of an organisation and try and examine every aspect and, and build in an anti-racist vision statement, culture, uh, and anti-racist behaviours, and support that with anti-racist policies and processes. You know, I think about my husband, so he is Black British. Two years ago, he joined um, uh, a very well-known, established, traditional UK retailer. 
And as part of his induction program, he was invited to go and meet the BAME group. So as he stood up to introduce himself and share his story, he noticed that two or three people in the room were crying. And he hadn't even got into his hard luck story. And uh, he had to stop and say, what's, you know, what's going on here? What have I said? What have I done? And they said, there's two things. Firstly, we never have experienced this before, and we never thought we would live to see the day when this organization took on a black person in such a senior role. Secondly, when we heard that you were coming, we Googled your name and we found some pictures of you online. And we noticed that you wore your hair in locks, which are right down to his waist. And they said to each other, well, that must be an old photograph. There is no way he would have come to an interview in this company with his hair long like that. And even if he did, and even if they took him on knowing that's what he looked like, we bet when he walks through our door, he will have shaved his head so he looks more like a professional person. And when he stood there in front of them with his locks and all, they were just overcome with emotion because that sense of being able to bring your whole self to work and just be accepted for who you are was something that they had not experienced. Wow, that's an amazing story because it just completely encapsulates this idea that some people being completely true to themselves and then lots of other people being individuals clearly not feeling they could bring them themselves to work. And the, the issue of the locks kind of sums that up. I wonder what, what, what gave your husband the confidence to, to, to do that. He's been incredibly successful and yet not conventional in that respect. You know, he, he's, in a, he's in a creative role. He's around creative people. He's found the self-confidence. He's very good at making people feel good about being around him. He's very aware of, of racial biases. He has very strong values. And I would say, you know, what I know about the way he works is that he is indeed a very inclusive person. And he's learned to navigate his way around a system. But he, they're few and far between, you know. There's a report came out in February of this year, the Parker Report, and it said of the FTSE 100 companies in this country, nearly 40% of them have no ethnic representation on their board. I mean, it's it's extraordinary, isn't it? I know. That a lot of them are going to be in the southeast. When you look at the ethnic diversity of London, for example, as a city, I mean, it's massively diverse and yet and so therefore you know the pool of recruitment is actually very diverse and so therefore it really makes you wonder what is going on with recruitment policy and then I think as a leader myself of an organization when I looked a couple of years ago and looked around in a good hard look at my own company and thought I don't have a diverse coach team and when I, I was, I remember talking to a, another black female coach, actually, someone outside the organization and, 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 you know, saying this to her and saying, you know, honestly, they don't apply. And she just looked at me and she said, Geraldine, no, they're not going to apply because if you look at your organization, it doesn't look welcoming. That's when it, I had a tremendous jolt in my mind thinking, no, 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 
this is the difference between not being racist and being anti-racist. You know, I think we need to be much bolder, much more courageous when we're talking about the race issue and, and thinking about how we can accelerate the tearing down of the racist policies and barriers that exist within companies. Now, we both believe in this, don't we? And it's not happening very fast. To what extent do you think the recent events will actually create some change? Well, I hope this is creating a window of opportunity. And I think both of the both of the very real and very um, profound experiences that, that we've lived through in the last few months, first of all, the, the COVID pandemic, and then secondly, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter following George Floyd's killing in, in America. I think it just gives everybody a pause for thought. And I hope there's a window of opportunity that comes as companies are thinking, well, post-pandemic, what do we look like? You know, what do we need to change within our organisations? What, what is worth hanging on to and what needs to be brought in that's new and different? It's very hard to understand what being the only other in the room is if you've never experienced it. So I think there's an awakening. And for me, I think that the next phase is going to be really interesting because once you know about something and you can no longer claim you have a blind spot about it, then you have a choice to make. And that's going to be the critical thing, isn't it? What choice do people make in these organisations? Do they choose to step into the hard work and confront some of the things that need to be confronted? Or do they choose just to move on to some other tactical emergency and think, I'll come back to this another day, or this doesn't really affect us here, or this is not what our people want to address right now? I'm hoping that this window of opportunity allows people to step into the hard work and embrace it. And I would hope that, you know, as coaches, we can support them and stand alongside them in their endeavours to do that. Thank you, Jean. It's been great as ever talking to you. So thank you for that. Likewise. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jess Rogers and I'm an executive and business coach. I provide some executive coaching for um, ECC on the parental transition side. And I also coach female entrepreneurs to help them grow their businesses. Jess, thanks so much for agreeing to come and have a conversation with me on Zoom. Um, Jess, let me dive straight in. You know that I'm quite keen on the idea of running programmes to help with promoting diversity. And one of the things that I'm interested in doing is running BAME programmes where we actually help to accelerate the careers, particularly of females. Uh, what do you think about actually isolating groups and providing targeted coaching? I myself have been part of some BAME programmes, running coaching for BAME programmes, and I definitely think there is a space for that, um, particularly at this time, you know, with Black Lives Matter and with the focus particularly on um, the lack of black executives in senior positions. So I think there's definitely a place for it. But I do think that it's important that the programmes are written and provided from the right place, if that makes sense in the sense that it's not about fixing individuals. It's about um, levelling the playing field. And it's not just about 
the coaching of the individual. It's also looking at the systems and the organisations that they're having to operate in and ensuring that there's work done on that side as well. A lot of the time you don't see role models, you don't see senior people within big organisations anyway who look like you. And so you know right there, you know, there's, there's that feeling that you can't be what you can't see. And so you keep working hard and you keep doing your best, but actually there isn't that kind of assumption that, oh, I'm going to become the CEO or I'm going to become the managing director. You don't make that assumption that that's available for you. You just think I'm going to work as hard as I can to get there. But that's it. So you know that there's something, that there are lots of things that perhaps are against you, but you don't always want to name it because you don't want to be seen as um, making yourself a victim. You just keep on working hard and keep on going. And that's definitely what my experience was. And I think now, though, the difference is that there is a degree of expectation that, you know, I want to be given an opportunity. I want to be given a chance. And perhaps I can be given an opportunity and a chance because everybody's having these conversations that they've never had before. I'm glad that you feel some hope around what's been happening recently and uh, the possibility for some change coming from it. Because, as you know, we've been talking about this for some time. Uh, the world's been talking about it for, for a long time, and yet very little really has changed. This is the thing. I think that there is a certain degree of sensitivity for people, isn't there, about talking about race issues in the workplace. And there's always that initial, well, I'm not racist. And, you know, as everybody has been saying a lot recently, it's more than just being not being racist yourself. It's about being anti-racist. And I think in a work capacity to talk about racism and white supremacy within um, organisations immediately gets people into that space of real discomfort. But the truth of the matter is that these conversations need to happen. Um, and on a hopeful note for me, you know, I've been working for over 20 years now and I've never heard conversations like this ever in my whole working life. So from, that's where the hope for me comes because I think, well, now people are at least starting to have the conversations, but it does need to go further and people need to recognise, businesses, organisations need to recognise that they are complicit in their system in the racism within the workplace. And actually this isn't about being accusatory or pointing the finger, it's about saying now it's time to look at what you can do differently and being open to have the conversations to do things differently and to ask difficult questions and to really turn, you know, turn the lens back on the practices that have existed and that have just gone because that's just the way things were. And actually that's not good enough. For my part, what I've learned through educating myself more in the last uh, eight weeks, I now realise the fact is I'm not discriminatory. I'm not actually personally being prejudiced. However, I'm racist by virtue of the fact I'm part of a system that has actually, and I've benefited from it. It's not necessarily recognising yourself as being racist. It's, I would offer you that it's recognizing now that you want to be more anti-racist so you know you're not a racist person necessarily you're you don't actively discriminate against people who are non-white however perhaps you haven't spoken up for people who are non-white when you've seen a situation where it's skewed against them Maybe you just haven't noticed it, but with the learning and the and the educating of yourself that you're doing, now that you recognise it, you're not just going to recognise it, you're actually going to speak out against it. And I think that's, that's where the difference is, and that's where you become anti-racist. It's uncomfortable all round, but we need to have the conversations 
as well as, you know, we actually can't just keep chatting about it. We actually need to do things differently as well. We need we need to dismantle parts of the system that are um, inherently racist. And you must, as a black female, see hundreds of, you know, uh, examples of things which are inherently racist. But I'm interested in the extent to which you feel you're able to actually speak up on it. Well, I'll be honest with you, Geraldine, until now, I haven't spoke. I've, I've kind of let it go. So, yes, I, you know, I work on um, coaching programs for BAME um, people within organisations and I, I do the work around that. But for myself, in my working life before coming into coaching, maybe to a certain extent whilst being in coaching, there's a bit of a, well, what's the point? Because if you're the only black face in a room or in a, you know, in a situation to start speaking up it's quite an it's quite exhausting being the only black face in the beginning and then also to feel that you're having to speak up about something and not really having anybody else's backing or anybody else who's had that lived experience is another is another level of exhaustion so I wouldn't actively put myself in that situation because that's a, a, a whole new level of vulnerability that for me personally it's not somewhere I would want to tread in a professional capacity because I'm navigating so much, so much so much other stuff I don't want to stand out for that reason I want to stand out because my work is good because I'm I'm good at what I do the needle shifted now that black people minority people probably feel more emboldened than previously because the conversations are happening but even then it's still quite an exhausting place to be when you're the only black or brown face around the table now I'm increasingly being of the view that actually maybe when it comes to gender diversity, maybe quotas are the only way forward. How do you feel about quotas when it comes to uh, race and, and ethnicity? See, this is a really interesting one for me, Geraldine, actually. Um, so first of all, when we're talking about race, racial equality and quotas, we have to be very careful not to use the phrase BAME because it's black and minority ethnic which covers a whole or it's anybody who's non-white basically falls into that and so actually you know Matt Hancock made the um in his interview with Sky a couple of weeks ago where they talked about how many they, they asked him how many black people do you have in the cabinet and he went on to talk about BAME people that they had in the cabinet and quote you know said Pretty Patel and Sadie Javid and actually there were no there were no black people that he could mention and so I think when you talk about quotas, you, you first of all, if you're talking about BAME quotas, well, that still could discriminate against black people because you could have quotas of um, Asian people and other non-white people. And similarly, you could have black people and not other um, BAME people. So that's the first thing. So I'd feel very uncomfortable with a BAME quota. And also it's all very well having a quota of people to tick again, to tick a box to say we've got X percent of um, individuals in senior management positions, but actually how much are their voices being heard? It's really important that if people go down that quota route, that they ensure that when those people are in those positions, their voices are actually being heard. They're not just being given a seat at the table to tick a box or to, you know, to fulfill the quota. Their views and their voices are actually being heard and they are actually being emboldened to use their voices when they get into those positions. So there's, I feel that there are multiple layers to the quotas question. 
and that that wouldn't be a, a simple solution. I really take your point about running together black and Asian and minority ethnic because you know from what I can see in terms of the women that we coach we coach many Asian women but we do coach very few black women and we are working in professional services and banking financial services across the piece so you know to take your point it is problematic to run those all those uh, names together and so what do you think about actually separating out whenever you are talking about it? I mean, are you averse to, I'm, I'm talking language here, is the very use of the expression being unpalatable? Yes, it is, <laughs> to be very blunt, um, because, you know, my experience as a black woman will be very different to the experience of a, you know, a South Asian woman, which will then be again different to the experience of a Japanese woman. But yet we're all lumped together. And in America, you've got, you know, Hispanics and, and all of the experiences are so difference you know in America they use people of colour and our experiences as of people as people of colour as BAME individuals are so ex are so different and so um diverse that it's it's too easy and a term for business to use as a catch-all phrase we've got to get to the point where if we're talking about race we're very clear about who we're talking about and what we're trying to do I, I think that We've gone past the hiding behind discomfort. I think actually people have to address their discomfort, to sit in their discomfort in order for change to actually happen. And the, you know, the, the wound has been opened now. And so it's time for people to really take this opportunity to have the difficult conversations and move things forward because our society is changing. And so that should be reflected in our business and that should be reflected in our language. And people have to be prepared to have those conversations. Jess, what do you think ECC can do in this space? Oh, I, I think ECC are in a prime position to really be at the forefront of some systemic change or helping, um, helping our executive coaches to actually look at their systems and make changes in their system. Because through coaching, we can help individual, influential decision makers within big corporations to really look at themselves, look at their, look at how they are operating in the system, look at how they are complicit in the racism and white supremacy that exists, and then start to make change and to do it from a place of knowledge and from a place of wanting to make a change and also from a place of empathy as well, which is what will really then make the difference. Thank you, Jess. You're welcome, Geraldine. Thank you so much to Sam, Jane and Jess for sitting down with me and for being so open. We originally wanted this podcast to help our listeners and DNI individuals to talk in their own organisations about interventions and practical solutions. Through doing this podcast, I'm reminded that a very important part of being able to do this is also to listen closely to what individuals in your own organisation may be saying. There's no doubt that businesses must tackle the issues discussed at every level and each part of an organisation. Leaders must understand their role in changing policy and practice and in fanning the fires of movements that are actually ignited at a grassroots level in their teams. Every individual needs to understand how they relate to the system and how they might be creating barriers to change. 
I also think individuals from marginalised groups need more support and the space to explore the impact on them of internalising some of these barriers. Exactly what all this looks like, of course, are significant topics, and I look forward to getting into them on another podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>